should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and uh, very happy to be a little bit more normal than we were. <laughs> Last week, and uh, again, apologies for this transition period um, in which we are training uh, a new producer who happens to also be my young nephew. Um, I think he's like 23. He's turning 24 this year. No, he's somewhere around that age. I don't know. Kids grow up so fast these days. Um, I have been pondering this idea of throwing him on that mic, but uh, he's a pretty shy guy, right, he Dennis? Is. And, and not only that, you know, Young's relative. I thought you were going to say, yeah, he's 16 years old, doing <laughs> his thing, you know. Doing a good job, Kenny. You want to you say hello to everybody? You might as well. Lean over here, bro. How are you guys doing today? Oh, that's good. Very good. I mean, awesome. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm very happy that he you kinda, were even you know, enthusiastic about Now break into Stockton that. slang, right. you know, <laughs> representing the Stockton. We should let Kenny know. I mean, we should let the world know that Kenny... Um, and I, you know, we grew up in Stockton, California, which is funny because U.S. News had just reported that it's one of the best cities to live in today. Well, you know, obviously. I, I am tripping on that so much because yeah. for years, Stockton, even back in, I want to say the late 70s, early 80s, you know, like before you guys were born, it was Fat City. It was like a broken down boxer town. And then it was the representation. Tell me if I'm wrong for that whole horrible um you know, housing crisis. Yes. Yes. In so, what the nineties? Would you say? Uh, uh, well, I mean, two thousand. Uh, yeah, two thousand eight would be at the height of the foreclosure situation. I mean, uh, all isn't, around the isn't Stockton where they would show the photos? They were amazing photos of full subdivisions that had like one person living in them. Well, Forbes had actually done a survey, and Stockton was like second saddest city in the entire country because of the foreclosure rate. Um, it's also the you know. First city, I believe, of its size yeah. to have filed bankruptcy. Uh, <laughs> um, hey, hey, let me say it, and Kenny told me to say this, not anymore, bitches. <laughs> but I think that what U.S. News was trying to say was because of, you know, all the people who lost their homes, hey, anybody who's got some extra cash laying around, you can come and buy some bank-owned homes, and it's cheap. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I guess a lot of people... Uh, who can't live in the Bay Area anymore, moving out to to Stockton. But anyway, that's another show, right? Yeah. Today's show is a is a very good show in which we'll talk about, we're going to talk about Texas. We're going to start the show off by talking about Texas. So let's get started. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. 
Our guest today is the regional coordinator for Equality Texas, uh, Robert Salcedo, and he heads a program in which um, it's going to be very interesting to talk about, which is the Transvisible Project in partnership with the ACLU of Texas. So, Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about Transvisible Project. Um, you know, we, we're, I see it on the Facebook page and there's uh, images, but let's go in further and kind of talk about the history and the inception and kind of how it all got started. No, absolutely. So we're definitely excited to have uh, this new project uh, that will be unveiling um, in Houston. And we'll be uh, later traveling to uh, each of the major cities here in Texas. Uh, Lou Weaver just came on uh, not too long ago earlier this year as our trans program uh, coordinator. And so these are some of the projects that he's working on in order to uh, bring awareness to the trans community, um, specifically when it comes uh, regarding uh, transgender prejudice reduction. Uh, so that's what we, uh, you know, the primary goal is just putting uh, regular everyday citizens who happen to be trans in the community and elevating their voices and elevating who they are as individuals so that people can see that they interact just like everybody else. They are part of the community just like everybody else, and they should be treated equally and with respect just like everybody else. I can't help but ask this question. We know, you know, uh, I mean, early last year um, in Texas specifically, there was, a, I mean, at least 20 anti-gay uh, bills that were being proposed to the legislation, which were inclusive of anti transgender bills. Um, can you give us kind of, you know, a, a snapshot of transgender life in Texas being a uh, very conservative red state for those of us who don't live there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, in regards to anybody in the community, the LGBT community, uh, gay and transgender individuals, but specifically for our trans community, um, they are at a higher rate of being discriminated against um, and being misunderstood and just really people are not educated about what being trans is and what it involves and you know that is our, our, our biggest issue is that people just don't know and so by, by launching projects like Transvisible we're hoping that we're able to get that information out there educate the community and let them know exactly what it is that they may not um, quite understand um, you know, so that's definitely going to come into play. Uh, just as you mentioned in our legislative session for 2015, we saw a record number of anti-LGBT specific, uh, some of them, most of them were specific to the trans community as well, where they were trying to cause harms to the Texas, uh, you know, community. Um, and so we definitely had to look at all of these and make sure that we followed them and did everything that we could um, through partnerships um, and through coalition groups to make sure that those were uh, knocked off the books and did not come into law. Um, I'll also add that while it was a horrible season for us in, in terms of the record number of anti-LGBT bills, um, but we also got to say that we did have a record number of pro-LGBT bills and bills that would benefit the community. Um, so definitely we're seeing um, kind of a, a mix here in Texas where we do have um, lawmakers and legislators that are on our side and definitely know that equality is good for our state. And so we're uh, working definitely with them and trying to increase the awareness and, and let everybody else know um, to try to be on the right side of history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can, you know, add to that. I, I just spent some time in El Paso and uh, had the honor of listening to Mary Gonzalez, uh, who's the first pansexual elected official 
and to come out like a state like Texas. It's so fascinating, you know, the um, commitment to progress and to equality in a state like Texas. I, I wanted to ask, you know, for someone like you who's on the grounds uh, every day and doing this type of work, I mean, do you find your position and your, you know, what you do, do you find it to be extremely challenging or are you, are you really, you know, can you speak to the amount of support that you might be yeah, facing today that we don't know about because we don't live in Texas and we only hear from <laughs> we only hear from the media of how horrible it is for LGBTQ people uh, out there in Texas? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, being on the ground and actually working in our communities, one thing that I can say is that Texans value hard work. Um, they value uh, a, a, an environment where they're uh, free of discrimination. Um, you know, we definitely feel that the state is big enough for everybody, and we should be able to respect everyone. So definitely working in the communities, we have people that are very supportive. They are very much in line with what is needed on a state level. It's unfortunate that we do have these key individuals that are in leadership positions and in elected positions that are elevating that hate and that bigotry just a little bit more than what's needed. And that's really where we are. So for the, the vast majority of Texas, everyone throughout the state mm-hmm. is against discrimination for the most part. I want to um, you know, go back to the Transvisible Project. I mean, while spending some time in Texas, what I did notice was that there's this big dialogue about uh, the trans community and immigration and sex work. And that seems to be a huge issue that's talked about uh, in Texas, say, um, uh, you know, uh, for example, if you were to compare Texas to, uh, I don't know, Oregon, it, you would hear this dialogue much more in Texas when it comes to the trans community. Uh, would Transvisible Project, would you be including those issues into your campaign and your work? Well, one thing that you want to keep in mind is that when we talk about uh, trans members of our community, trans com- members of our community are involved in all sections of the community. It's that cross-section where, so whether it crosses over to immigration, whether it crosses over to healthcare, you know, any of the issues that you can think of that might affect an everyday Texan, those are the same issues that are affecting our trans community as well. There's no difference uh, when it comes to the issues that they face. So, you know, what we look at, and for the vast majority across the state, is any issues that you can look at, whether it be immigration issues, healthcare issues, uh, you know, gender inequality, I mean, you can look at any issue that's going on in the world today and as well as any issues that are happening here in Texas locally, and those are the same issues that our trans community is facing as well. So by us having this uh, opportunity to elevate the voices of the trans community, definitely there's going to be many issues that are going to come up. That cross-section between what is actually, um, you know, perceived as just being a trans issue, you know, those aren't Those are just issues of everyday citizens, like you Mm -hmm. spoke of immigration. You know, definitely uh, our trans community has um, some issues within the immigration. Now, it may be a little bit different um, on the exact details of what issues are within immigration. You know, we can talk about, you know, uh, detention centers and, you know, making sure that they properly classify um, uh, and code a a trans person so that they are put in the um, unit of which they identify um, but, you know, things like that. But it, it, overall, for you know, what we're looking at, the issues, um, you know, they have the same issues just like everybody else. And those are definitely going to come up in this project 
Um, because again, we're elevating their voice and their personal experiences and their personal stories. Sure, sure. And I, I think, you know, maybe to better clarify my question, uh, for example, you know, California has a whole new set of different issues because we've got some laws that absolutely protect LGBTQ. And then we, uh, you know, obviously have some room to grow in that. Um, uh, here in San Francisco specifically, we have a high number of LGBTQ, especially T, um, of youths who are homeless or who are part of our homeless population. Um, at the same time, California prides itself in you know, the fact that we've got a bill that we've passed that gives uh, transgender youth access to uh, rest, you know, the restroom that they best identify with. So what are some specifics as far as Texas goes? I mean, what, 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 are, what prominent bills can we uh, say, you know, while we're proud to have this bill that covers and protects LGBT? And then, you know, where, where's the room to grow in that? Um, well, definitely we're in Texas, so there is a lot of room to grow. Um, you know, there is not many, if any, uh, protections for our trans community, but there are things that need to be brought up, um, you know, such as, you know, as simple as changing their gender markers, aligning their birth certificates, um, you know, you know, was an issue in the past. You know, when we look at gender-neutral bathrooms and, you know, having accommodations for the trans community. Uh, just recently, the UIL here in Texas voted um, and or you know made updates to their policy so that you know it limits what a trans student who is wanting to participate in sports can um, you know the team of which they can play on you know so these are definitely things that we can uh, look at and look for improvement um, by working with our, our elected officials and, and making sure that we uh, put these at the forefront of the conversation. Thank you so much, Robert. We're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I'd love to continue our conversation about Texas, and I should say the state of LGBTQ people in the state of Texas. Don't go away. We'll be right back here on The Michelle Miel Show. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. 
This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you thank you so much for joining us here on this program, the Michelle Miel Show. Uh, you know, it's uh, daylight savings time has totally tripped me up. And even though it's been a few days after, I'm still tripping. <laughs> That's what happens when you take an hour of sleep away from someone. Our guest today is Robert Salcedo, who's the regional coordinator from Equality Texas and working on a transvisibility project. And so, Robert, right before the break, we had just mentioned a, a few things uh, regarding Texas in terms of having a lot of room to grow. Um, I kind of wanted to get into the heart of that discussion. I mean, meeting a few of the elected officials plus some representatives from the education system in Texas, there seems to be, you know, this acknowledgement that uh, it, 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 it is a red state, uh, one. Two, uh, many people are conservative and um, religious. And three, you know, the education system, or the ed- as you had mentioned, uh, people are really lacking the education. I mean, you take something like... Um, Let's say, for example, the situation in Houston um, and the the hero uh, bill or the ordinance that had failed. I mean, there's there's still a whole lot of work to grow. But can we talk a little bit more in depth about even explaining to our listeners and kind of why uh, an extension to include sexual orientation and gender identity would, uh, you know, fail in in, a city or in Texas? Well, definitely. I mean, you know, as you know, people may know here in the state of Texas, as well as many other states, there's absolutely no protections currently um, that are in place in order to protect the LGBT community against discrimination in jobs, public accommodations, and housing. Um, what we look at, though, um, as far as the citizens, um, is that 60% of 67% of Texans favor those exact laws that would protect um, the LGBT community when it came. When it comes to their jobs, um, any type of public accommodations, um, and then of course in the housing um, sector as well. Um, and you know, when we're looking at you know that in itself, um, unfortunately, that represents the true vision of Texas, or the you know what Texas truly represents, and that's a state that um, that does not think that discrimination um, should be happening. Um, however, um, those same Texans that think that way um, are not making it to the polls. Um, therefore, you know, people that are being elected into offices and higher positions of the state um, are representing uh, the, the minority, um, you know, that they're using um, their power that they have mm-hmm. and the offices that they hold um, in order to push, uh, you know, these, you know, their, you know, religious exemptions um, or their personal beliefs rather than protecting their, their constituents and the entire state. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what we're looking at in terms of, you know, and a broad overview of, of where our state is, you know, like I said, you know, citizens don't like discrimination, but that, that, that's not equally or that's not represented um, by our public or elected officials uh, there in Austin. Mm-hmm. 
And so with the uh, Transvisibility Project, um, in which, uh, forgive me, I think that we mentioned that it, it has launched this year or it's going to launch? Uh, so Transvisible Project um, is launching in Houston, Texas. Um, and so that is actually coming up um, here uh, pretty quick. It's uh, later this month on March 31st. Um, and we are, it's a, a gallery opening. Um, so they're going to be gallery quality photographs of, of transgender and gender nonconforming Texans. Um, and like I said, we're using this as a, a broad public education campaign, um, you know, to elevate those voices of our trans community. Mm-hmm. And I know that's just one project that Equality Texas um, works on. You guys work on everything from, you know, uh, legislation to campaigns such as this. But we we had highlighted the importance of this campaign earlier, right before the break. Um, and I kind of want to hit that home, too, for our listeners and why this is so, so, so important to just get faces of trans people out there in Texas. You know, absolutely. And, and it kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier, where it's a lack of education and the lack of knowing uh, what the trans community and who they are. Um, by having this type of project in place, like I said, not only does it reduce the prejudice that people may have um, and the mis- uh, misinformation, but what it also does is it elevates the voices, it elevates the stories, um, and that's one thing that we look at when we are just, you know, in any state that you're in, um, you know, Texas and beyond, is the best way um, to educate people is by telling our stories, by telling those personal stories and getting that, that out there. And that's really the true way that we're going to change the hearts and minds of individuals. Um, and, you know, and by, you know, elevating this type of campaign or this project, um, you know, people are then going to, it's going to be a conversation starter, um, you know, so somebody attends the event and then they're going to talk about it with, uh, to their friends and their friends are going to talk to their friends and really having that conversation. That's really, truly where it begins. It's the conversations that we have in our living room, the conversations that we have over dinners and, and coffee with our friends um, and just really, you know, having that important dialogue um, that is going to advance. Uh, you know, people's sure. uh, thought processes um, and really what they know yeah. about the trans community. Speaking of changing hearts and minds, I would uh, imagine that in a state like Texas um, and, and kind of going over again, uh, it being a conservative state or, or uh, filled with those, you know, who are conservative, especially in religious beliefs. I, do you think that, you know, it's campaigns like this or stories like these who are changing those types of hearts and minds that are, you know, coming out to the polls and voting uh, on anti-gay bills? Well, yeah, definitely. And, you know, we can, you know, take, uh, you know, Houston's Equal Rights Ordinance and, uh, as an example. You know, the voter turnout on that, and, you know, unfortunately it didn't make it um, into law. But what happens there is that we didn't get enough voters out because not enough people knew exactly what that type of measure was going to be doing. Um, you know, the, what types of protections it was going to do for all of, uh, you know, all of these Houston citizens. Um, but the more that we educate people and let them know the misinformation that these uh, the opposition is putting out there and the scare tactics that they're using they're not they're no longer going to work if people have the education and the information they need to make a a decision an educated decision on their own um, you know when people don't know and then they hear something that's negative or they hear something that's a scare tactic they're going to believe it because they have nothing else to base it on so it is our hope through putting programs out there like this that we're we're combating that just that we're putting that information into people so that they can make educated decisions and know that trans individuals need the same protection as just like everybody else. Robert, thank you so much for joining us here on this program and uh, for working on a very important project like uh, the your Trans Visibility Project. So thank you. 
We appreciate it. Thank you. Robert Salcedo is with Equality Texas. If you'd like more information, please visit equalitytexas.org. And now a word from our special partner, H&R Block. It's tax time, and so we have tax tips for you. I'm so excited to have this program here on the show. I think it's very important for us to speak openly about, you know, our struggles, our finances, and taxes. It can get all so confusing. So we're very lucky to have Block Advisors Maria Rebelta with us. Maria, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Michelle. It's like free advice. It's so awesome. (laughs) So, you know, some of you may have heard us talking about the uh, earned income tax credit that some people uh, may be missing out on. I want to continue with that conversation and focus on education. I know that there are many different types of credits and deductions when it comes to education. Walk us through a few of those that are commonly overlooked. Okay, yes. So there are so many credits and deductions for education. There's the American Opportunity Credit, the lifetime learning credit, and then there's a tuition and fees deduction credit. Those are some of the ones that are overlooked. Well, that you know, that's a, for to me, a standard person, I have no idea what that means. So I'm, I'm guessing that each of these types of credits apply to a certain or specific type of person. Yes, the important thing is to plan to maximize the credits throughout your college career. Yes, so about half of taxpayers don't know that they can take an education credit maybe the first four years or even if they go to graduate school. So how do you know, like, uh, you know, the American Opportunity Credit, like what what exactly is that? So that actually has two parts to it. There, if you have no tax liability, this is one that you should definitely file a tax return for. This one has a refundable portion where you can get up to $1,000 back, even with no tax liability. And that's all students? Uh, it doesn't matter where you're at in your education? No, this is actually for the first four years of your education. Okay. After that, we'd have to see if you qualify for the lifetime learning credit or maybe a tuition and fees deduction. And uh, so the lifetime learning credit, that's someone going back into school or? Correct. Yes, this is someone going back and you can get up to $2,000 of credit there. Wow. Yes. Um, and uh, and then finally, I think there was one more that we talked about. Uh, or no, maybe that was just those two. There's a tuition and fees deduction where you can get a deduction of up to $4,000 um, to come off from your income. And that applies to anybody enrolled full-time? Yes, yes. Grad students, if you're going back for your MBA, um, everyone. The important thing is just to plan to maximize and see which credit is best for you at this time of your life. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. I didn't know students can also get money back. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, is this something new or, I mean, it's it's ongoing, but most people kind of don't, you know, like, for example, for me, I don't think that students, not that they don't deserve money back, but I didn't think that, you know, they make enough money to get money back. Exactly. People don't because they maybe sometimes they only work a part-time job or they are below that filing threshold. Um, they don't think they need to file a return and qualify for a credit. But yes, they can. Um, The important thing is to file. File a tax return to see if you qualify and see which one is best for you at that time of your career. Mm -hmm. And what if you're a student and you're tuning in right now and you haven't filed, uh, you didn't file last year, or maybe you filed and you think that you didn't um, take advantage of some of these uh, credits that we're talking about today? Can you go back and change some things? Yes. Almost 50% of taxpayers uh, don't know that they could actually go back and amend prior year returns. So they can actually go back three years. Oh, wow. Um, and we have something called Second Look where we'll, we will actually check these returns for you and amend if needed. 
That's incredible. So students out there, whether you are, you know, just a first year grad, undergraduate, or you're uh, someone who's jumping back into education, as long as you're a student, it sounds like you can get some money back. So make sure you talk to someone. Uh, And again, we're very thankful to have Maria here on the program. Maria, thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me. And now back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Our next guest is a special guest, and I can uh, I can say is a good friend here on the program who's been with us several times. Um, and so we're excited to hear from him, especially because of the state of San Francisco. Uh, it's no joke and definitely no lie, especially for any of you who had visited San Francisco or paid attention to San Francisco during the Super Bowl, in which there was a large discussion about the homeless population and the displacement of San Francisco residents um, that's that's happening here uh, in the city and has been happening for at least the last you know five years in in high numbers and I should say this is happening so fast and so quickly and it's impacting the most vulnerable of of San Francisco so let's welcome Supervisor David Campus to the program David thanks so much for being with us Michelle thank you so much thank you for always you know covering the important issues that are impacting not just the city but you know. Uh, the, the entire area, and, and I'm, I'm really uh, pleased to be here once again. Yeah, you know, and although this program is aired uh, nationally and wherever Progressive Voices carries the show, I think that San Francisco is a great example of what we need to be talking about in hopes that, you know, it's not, um, uh, you know, it's not it's not happening in other major cities that will then further impact those of us who, you know, are, are sick or ailing or old or, you know, who wants to be homeless? Who wants to be displaced? Let's talk about your most recent uh, statement in which you declared um, a state of emergency right here in San Francisco, right? Sure. Yes, and you know this is basically the culmination of uh, not just months, but actually years of seeing the issue of homelessness get to the point uh, that I, I have never seen, uh, uh, where you have encampments throughout uh, the city uh, you have right now uh, close to 7,000 people living on the streets of San Francisco. Uh, we have uh, capacity for half of that in terms of the shelter system. We have a shelter system that has uh, a wait list of 700 people, uh, which means that there are people who are not even trying to be in the shelter system anymore. They've given up. Mm-hmm. And the impact on, on those individuals and on neighborhoods like the ones that I represent, whether it's Vernal Heights, whether it's, you know, uh, the mission, uh, is, is, is so great that I felt that we finally had to say we've had enough, and it is an emergency. And I, I think this is really about forcing the hand of city government so that city government can prioritize doing something about it, because what city government has done in response, in my view, has not been enough. What what we have seen City Hall do is basically when the encampments uh, happen, as, as was the case with Division Street, they move people from those encampments, but they don't give them a place to go. And what happens when you move people without giving them a place to go? You're basically just moving them to a side street. You're actually not solving any problem. And so a state of emergency recognizes, one, that it is an emergency, that it is a crisis. Second, it allows the city to use uh, 
public property that we own for the purpose of housing people, and it allows us to cut through the red tape that sometime, uh, sometimes gets in the way. And it's the beginning of a, of a longer strategy that also recognizes that there are some things that we have actually done that have worked out well. One of them is actually a navigation uh, center that we helped to open in our system, working with, with Bevan Dufty uh, and the mayor's office. We opened it about a year ago. And, you know, when we opened it, the idea was that there would be several navigation centers in other parts of the city, and yet a year later, uh, it's the, still the only navigation center that's there. So we are introducing legislation in the next couple of weeks that will require the opening of more navigation centers because what navigation centers do is they provide people a space uh, without some of the limitations and the rules that apply in a shelter to actually go and have housing, have a roof under the, over their head, get services, get treatment, uh, and then it links them to long-term housing. And so the Navigation Center and the Mission has actually been very successful. It has led to the housing of hundreds of people. We need to replicate that and do it in other parts of the city. And so that's what this does, and, and I'm very you know proud of this because I think that we have to recognize that we have a major crisis in our hands, and anyone who has walked the streets of San Francisco knows that this is a crisis. Mm-hmm. Now, let's uh, pull it back a little bit and provide you know some perspective or a lens to those who don't live in and around this area. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's uh, you know some have said, and I would say that those who uh, not necessarily oppose you, but have a different version of why we have homeless uh, homelessness here in San Francisco, may say that, you know, this this staggering number of 6,000 or so plus people have kind of been consistent in the last decade or so. And that has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, San Francisco is rich in social services that we provide for the homeless uh, community. And so, you know, to say that we're in a state of crisis, in their opinion, I should say, mm-hmm. um, it's 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 exaggerated. What What is your response to that? I don't think it's exaggerated. I mean, in, I, you know, in many respects, it's not about what I think. Uh, what I am doing by, by saying this is a crisis is actually talking about what I'm hearing directly from my constituents. I don't think it's a crisis, the level of, of, of uh, displacement that we have seen. Uh, we have never, we haven't seen encampments in, uh, reach the magnitude that they have. I haven't seen, I've been in the, on the Board of Supervisors since my eighth year, I haven't seen the impact on neighborhoods reach the level that it has. In places like Bernal Heights, you know, you have encampments in the surrounding area, and, and you have uh, people uh, who are not getting services by the city. And so what happens is that we're leaving it up to the neighborhood to actually deal with people who, you know, are going to the bathroom in their uh, in their driveway, who uh, people who are, are having, you know, perhaps mental health issues that the city is not doing anything about. So I think something has happened uh, that qualitatively, quantitatively, it has reached a crisis point. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that we also have to be careful about the generalizations that we make because what's happening also in San Francisco is that a survey of the homeless population shows that you know about 70% of people uh, actually used to live in the city before you know so the majority are people who actually have lived in San Francisco for a while and who for whatever reason are are no longer housed. One of those reasons, by the way, is because of the cost of living in San Francisco. We have the highest rents. 
uh, in the country. It's the most expensive housing in the country. And, and the issue of homelessness, in many respects, is a manifestation of the larger issue of, of this housing crisis and the inequality. San Francisco has, right now, the unique distinction of being, on one hand, the wealthiest city in the country, arguably, and then, uh, according to the Brookings Institute, the city with the fastest growing inequality. So we have some really wealthy people, and then we have a lot of people who are not benefiting from the, benefiting from the prosperity. And what I'm saying is that it is not it is not only cruel to let people live on the streets, but it's also not smart. Uh, we have to make sure that we're using the resources of the city in a cost-effective way. It's a lot more expensive to actually treat the the symptoms of homelessness in terms of, you know, the the cost of cleaning up streets, of people going to the emergency room, uh, when it's a lot cheaper to actually. Uh, provide services in a place like a navigation center, we actually end up spending less money. And you know what? Not only is it less money, but it actually is more effective. And so something has to change. The uh, status quo is not tenable. And I think that it it really breaks my heart that in San Francisco, the city of St. Francis, uh, that we have the conditions that we see throughout the city. David, I mean, obviously, just kind of talking about this and diving very lightly into it, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to understand that this is a very complex situation. But at the same time, uh, although we can start addressing the needs of uh, the homeless community, you had just mentioned, you know, we're also having a housing crisis and the disparity between those who have and those who don't, you know, is growing so fast here in San Francisco. I can't help but make a, you know, very uh, 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 <laughs> I should say opinionated statement in saying that, you know, uh, uh, leaders of City Hall or, or uh, specifically our mayor, you know, is somewhat ignoring this fact because uh, there's so much attention to the growing uh, economic developments of the city. And I can understand as a politician, you want to focus on that. A- am I, you know, saying too, uh, too much of a bold statement there? Well, I think, look, I mean, I, I, I don't want to make this about one individual, but I do believe that, you know, there's a failure of this administration of the mayor's administration to take this issue seriously. And on the housing front, uh, the fact is that the housing that we have seen San Francisco build is housing that is not really for the people who have been living here. It's housing for not just the rich, but the ultra-rich. And so part of what's happening is is because we haven't built housing, not just for low income, but actually middle class. I mean, there are actually, people don't understand that there are people who are homeless who actually have full-time jobs. You know, but but when the cost of a one bedroom on the median price, you know, to rent is like thirty five, thirty six hundred, it becomes very challenging, and it's manifesting itself in many ways. I mean, we're having problems, for instance, keeping teachers in our schools because uh, teachers are not able to afford to live in San Francisco. And I'll tell you, as a, as a gay man, I'm especially concerned about the uh, disproportionate impact that the issue of homelessness has on the LGBTQ community. Uh, we know that uh, in terms of uh, homeless youth, about 40% of the people uh, that are homeless uh, are LGBTQ. 
and that's a problem. You have about a third of, of the homeless population that is that is queer. Uh, so our community is being disproportionately impacted, and I, it really breaks your heart. And, and, you know, San Francisco, for so many LGBT youth, becomes a beacon of hope, right? They come to San Francisco from other parts of the country because here they can be themselves. They're escaping abuse uh, or, or, who knows, you know, a horrible situation at home. And then when they come to San Francisco, you know, you have a situation where they're sleeping on the streets, they, many of them don't feel safe in the shelter system. And, you know, we have tried to do as much as we can. In my district, you know, we work with Bevan Dufty to open up, like I said, the first navigation center. We also opened up on South Van S the first LGBTQ homeless shelter, mm-hmm. especially for, you know, transgender and LGBT people who felt unsafe in the, in the, in the uh, shelter system. Uh, but we need to do more. And, and that's why... You know, what this state of emergency is at the end of the day is about San Francisco recognizing that what we have been doing is not working. We need a change, of course. We need a new perspective. We need to make it a higher level of priority. And, you know, when you deal with a crisis, to effectively deal with that crisis, you first have to recognize that it is a crisis. And that's one of the steps that we're we're taking here. What's been the response since your declaration of uh, the city, you know, the state of emergency? Well, I mean, I think I'll tell you, I, I, I have worked on many issues over the years and we have worked on homelessness for a few years now, but I've never seen the kind of response that I have received uh, because what I, what I have heard is that even people who may not necessarily agree with my politics on some issues feel like, you know, finally someone is saying something about this and and I think that the response from from the vast majority of San Franciscans is sort of, uh, yeah, you know, it's like you're not saying anything new. Uh, you just have to walk around these neighborhoods to see that we have an emergency. And uh, it's been unlike anything that I've seen. And, and that's because I think people are frustrated. People feel like, you know, they're paying their taxes, they're playing by the rules, and yet, you know, the character of these neighborhoods is changing. And not only that, but it's inhumane as well, because, you know, we're talking about homeless, the homeless, but, you know, at the end of the day, these are human beings, right? And should a human being live in these conditions? And uh, and so uh, I think people in these neighborhoods and throughout the city get it. I think it's something that transcends, you know, political ideology. And I think that they feel that, you know, we need a city government to do a better job of dealing with this crisis. And so uh, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Oh, that's so good to hear. David, we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I want to continue our discussion. And also, I want to dive in a little bit about about you and your work and what's to come. So don't go away, okay? Thank you. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. 
Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this program. Our special guest is Supervisor David Campos here in San Francisco, in which uh, just recently um, he made a statement. He declared San Francisco in a state of emergency when it comes to our homeless uh, situation. And, uh, you know, I want to kind of go back and talk about that worded statement in which uh, part of your what you said, David, you had mentioned that the executive branch needs to act. And what we're looking to do is build more navigation centers for the homeless in the next, um, well, as soon as we can, right? And there's something that you said to me that jumped out. Um, and, and for a lot of those who are not, who don't live in San Francisco, this will make some sense. Uh, this this ordinance that David's talking about will require a funding plan that will activate emergency reserve funds and streamline and cut current spending in the $9 billion budget to build the navigation centers without additional costs to the residents. And so what David said was, if we can afford $5 million for the Super Bowl, we can afford to address homelessness. Let's elaborate on that, David. Yeah, and you know, what, what happened with the Super Bowl, uh, and there's a lot of connections between how the city handled the Super Bowl and homelessness. You know, with the Super Bowl, uh, and, and I think anyone, I think, was excited that the Super Bowl was coming to the Bay Area, but the problem with the way that San Francisco handled the Super Bowl is that it didn't ask uh, the NFL, which is this major corporate entity, to actually pay the or reimburse the city of San Francisco for the costs incurred, which actually happened. Uh, they did reimburse uh, Santa Clara, but not San Francisco. 
And uh, what happened as a result of the Super Bowl is that, and we, I've heard this directly from homeless people, people were encouraged to essentially uh, move into some of these streets, like Division Street. Uh, you know, the mayor made a very unfortunate statement at some point saying, you know, we want the homeless to go away before the Super Bowl comes to San Francisco. Yeah. And, and that manifested itself. And, and people who, who were homeless on the streets of San Francisco moving to these neighborhoods, to these neighborhoods streets like Division Street, where you had encampments, an encampment which is as large as an encampment as I've ever seen. And, and I think it's sad that, that, first of all, that's how we handled you know, the Super Bowl, that we wanted homeless people to go away and to not be seen. Uh, sad on so many different levels, but it's also sad that it pushed the issue to these neighborhoods, right, without an actual response. Uh, because the fact is that it is not humane for people to be living on the streets, you know, camping out in these tents, you know, and it became a, a health hazard. But how did we deal with it? Instead of actually finding places for people to go, we just pushed them, you know, down the street. And that's what's happening. And 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 I think that the 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 there are you know, I've always said, you know, there's two a tale of two cities. You have the side of San Francisco that is the wealthiest city in the world, in the, in the, in the country that, that is hosting the Super Bowl, and it's you know, seen as an example of you know, progress and prosperity. And yet you have that other side of San Francisco that is being hidden from the rest of the world, uh, where you have thousands of people living on the street, where you have people with mental health issues that are not getting help, substance abuse that are not getting help. And so, and so we are basically saying here, you know, the city of St. Francis is a, is a city of compassion uh, uh, of, of, that's humane in terms of how it treats people, and letting the the homeless situation play itself out the way that it is uh, in the wealthiest city of the country is just not fair. It's not right. We have to do a better job. Absolutely. And so, David, I mean, here we are, you know, and you've taken uh, an incredible step in the right direction as a leader um, over there at City Hall. And uh, the scary thing is, you know, you're terming out um, and this mayor has just been reelected. But but that's because he ran pretty much uncontested Um, with the, you know, doing stuff like this. I can only imagine that it also then gives voice to those who are just as upset and uh, concerned about this situation. Do you think that that, you know, the mayor will wake up? I mean, just by making this statement, it sounds like we are asking the mayor to do something about this. Well, I hope so. Uh, you know, I, I actually met with the mayor's homeless czar uh, this morning where I basically said, look, you know, uh, I already have the support of seven uh, of us on the Board of Supervisors. Seven of the 11 are already on record saying they support this. So this is going to pass. Uh so why why doesn't the mayor and his administration just get on board? Let's work together. You know, when we worked together with the mayor, we actually opened up the first navigation uh, center in the mission a year ago. So let's use this as an opportunity to actually focus on solving the problem instead of like you know going back and forth. You know, so I, I am cautiously optimistic that the mayor will see this as an opportunity to work together. Uh, but you know whether whether he does it or not, we're going to move forward because mm-hmm. it's the right thing to do. And and the thing about San Francisco is that I think that people are very smart. You know, and let me say this: I am not a, an expert in homelessness, 
But it doesn't take an expert in homelessness to know that we have a real problem in our hands. And San Francisco is a city that is innovative. It's the you know where you know the, we're in the heart of Silicon Valley. That's where the you know, you know technology and you know we're we're making innovative change you know across the board. If any city should be able to figure out this issue, it should be San Francisco, because this isn't just about San Francisco. It's actually a national problem. It's a problem that's happening in L.A., it's, it's, it's Seattle. You know, all over the country, there is growing inequality that it's, that's leading to a lot of people living on the streets. And so let's see if we can figure out a solution here in San Francisco, because I think that if any city can, it is San Francisco. I, I do agree with you. I, I kind of, although, you know, what we read on the blogs and the news lately, even um, for those who have made insensitive comments regarding the homeless issue and also directed towards the homeless um, community, I have to believe that there are still really good people in San Francisco, like you. <laughs> um, well, I mean, go ahead. It's the city of St. Francis, right? And it is a progressive, it's a, it's a, it's a forward-thinking city. And, and the reality is that, you know, the homeless that are on the street, I mean, they're someone's mother, they're someone's brother, someone's sister. And, uh, you know, we are, we're going to have to deal with them because they're not going away. And we actually end up spending a lot more by actually being, you know, reactive instead of having a, 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 a carefully thought out strategic response. Mm-hmm. And every time that I have spoken to a homeless person, they want a place to go. You know, and unless we create these places for them to go, the problem will will continue. And the other thing that I would say is that, you know, the, the it really hurts these neighborhoods. It hurts these neighborhoods because see, these are people who are paying their taxes, you know, and 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 who live in San Francisco because they, they, they value the politics of San Francisco. They appreciate the fact that we care about each other. And it really breaks your heart when you see what's happening in some of these neighborhoods. Exactly. Now, I want to turn our attention to the other side of what contributes to the homeless issue here in San Francisco, and that's evictions. I mean, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, there are big developers who are um, developing homes, not necessarily for the middle class, uh, Mm -hmm. but but for the, the, the rich. How are we going to address this problem and, you know, the amounts of uh, evictions that are currently happening? Because it's still happening. Well, it's still happening, and, you know, we have drawn, done as much as we can in terms of passing laws to, to protect uh, tenants in San Francisco. But I think the key is to focus on the production of housing that is affordable. You know, there's been this sort of this debate, uh, and, and some in the, uh, in the developer community feel like, you know, it doesn't matter what you build as long as you're building, you know, that's the solution. And you know, I, I don't believe that this this strategy of just build, build, build is is the answer because it's not just that you build. You need to build affordable housing because when you're building luxury units that are unaffordable to the vast majority of San Franciscans, you're not actually helping the people who help make the city what it is stay in San Francisco. You know, if you look at places like the Mission, we haven't really built uh, housing that's affordable to a teacher. And, and lo and behold, not surprisingly, teachers cannot afford to live in San Francisco. That's why I think that it's not just that we need to build more. What we build is important, and that's why we are pushing to build affordable housing. The city just passed the largest housing bond in its history, $310 million, and that's a step in the right direction. We need to use that money so that we actually build housing that is affordable for people. 
how do you want, I mean, how do you say, I want San Francisco to have teachers if you're actually not building housing for those teachers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a teacher, let's, let's take a teacher. A teacher probably makes about 35, 3,600, a fully credentialed teacher. Uh, uh, that's the full salary, right, for the month. That's actually the, they actually make less than what it costs to rent a one bedroom in San Francisco. So if we want teachers, if we want police officers, if we want, you know, middle class people to live in San Francisco, we actually have to build uh, housing for them. And, and one way we do that, and this is something that we're pushing really hard, is that we use city property, which we have some property, that's one of the resources we have, to build affordable housing for middle class and low income people on that property. I think that's the solution because I don't think that if we leave it simply to the marketplace that the market will do it on its own because if you're a developer and you have the choice between building housing for the middle class or housing for the super wealthy where the margin of profit will be much higher when you when you build luxury housing you're not going to build luxury you're not going to build middle class housing. Mm-hmm. That's why government has to step in and play a role. And and what about uh, addressing you know those tech companies and their um, awesome tax <laughs> tax breaks? Um, is there any way to implement uh, their tax structures or or perhaps you know find a way in which we can bring some of that money back to San Francisco to help? Well, you know, I voted against the Twitter tax break because I felt that it was short-sighted to simply roll out the red carpet without expecting anything in return. Because what happens is, a lot of what happened is that because of these tax breaks, companies, you know, came into San Francisco and we wanted them to be here. But they brought in, they hire people, by the way, not from San Francisco, but people came into the city and they came into the city without any strategy for giving for building housing for them. So what happened is that a lot of these workers, you know, came into uh, these neighborhoods and and in these neighborhoods, you know, because of the demand, uh, the, the the housing got so expensive that a lot of people started being pushed out. And now the, the the tech workers themselves, by the way, are victims to what's happening because you know I see it in some of these part, you know, some of these units, you know, when you're renting a, a a two bedroom for ten thousand dollars a month, which I've seen that. How how do people afford that? They have bunk beds. You have these tech workers making you know six figures, sleeping in bunk beds, and 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 so they themselves are being impacted by this. And so so it has gotten to the point that that I mean there is no rationality here, and that's why I think the city has to step in. And my message to these tech companies is, you know, we want you to be here, but your workers are part of this community. We need your help. We mm-hmm. need those companies to contribute back to 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 the the, San, the city of San Francisco. Right now, they're not paying the taxes that they need to pay uh, in terms of the impact they're having on the city. Uh, and and I think that there is a, an interest on the part of some of these companies to be a part of the solution. Uh, sort of instead of you know finger pointing, let's see how we work together. You know to to come up with a solution because you know no one is benefiting from the level of displacement that's happening out there. David, we have a couple minutes left, and so I want to leave our listeners who are uh, passionate about you know you and your work and very supportive of you. I, one, how do we how do we continue to support you? And then two, you know what what's next for David Campos? 
Well, thank you, Michelle, for that question, and I'm really uh, appreciative to you and your listeners for the support, uh, the amazing support over the years. I'm not sure exactly what the next uh, step will be, uh, but I want people to know that I'm not going away. Uh, I may be termed out in November of this year. Uh, I'm actually uh, at the end of the year, but but I'm still going to be involved, and and I know that, uh, you know, I believe in public service. I believe that uh, that this is a profession that allows you to make a positive contribution to society, and I'm committed to that. And so I will keep you posted. I'm not going away. We're going to continue to, to work. And even, I mean, we're showing that right now. You know, we have nine months left, but we're going out, you know, with a bang. We're, we're going to continue to work until the very last day in office. David, thank you so much for your friendship and for your leadership and everything that you do. And of course, that does make me feel a lot better that you're not going anywhere because uh, for some of us, you know, who absolutely agree with uh, your work, um, it's kind of scary to think that uh, if if a voice like yours were to be lost or not there, um, man, that's heavy lifting for, for a lot of us. Well, thank you, Michelle. It's very kind of you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. The Michelle Miao Show. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm greatly appreciative of your support. If you've got thoughts, ideas, questions, comments, please head to michellemiao.com and let me know. Until next time, or I should say until tomorrow, my friends, at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, right here on Progressive Voices.